Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double N. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 482 of the podcast and it is Friday 27th of March 2020 as I record this. So today I have an interview with Mark Leslie Lefebvre, regular on the show, about getting your books into bookstores and libraries. Now, once again, we recorded this over a month ago when the world was different uh, as I batch my interviews. So as I speak right now, physical bookstores are closed in a lot of places. I just read that 65% of Barnes and Nobles in the USA are closed. Certainly bookstores here in the UK are closed. Even print on demand sales are delayed as the delivery services are overwhelmed in many places. But library apps for ebooks and audiobooks are no doubt booming. So uh, we will get through this and physical bookstores will be back and physical events will be back. So this is useful to get things in place so you can be ready for a positive future. And plus Mark and I have been friends a long time so we have a good chat. So that interview is coming up. So a little update uh, right here as I speak uh, here in the UK. We are in lockdown. The country went into lockdown uh, on Monday. So this is day five. Just now, in fact, the news reported that our Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, has tested positive for COVID-19 with minor symptoms and will continue to run the country. (laughs) So this is still we're in those weird times and many of us have been restricting movement and kind of behaving differently for a couple of weeks now. So it definitely feels like we've been doing this for a few weeks. Jonathan and I have been out walking every day. We are allowed uh, one outing for exercise every day, as long as you stay distanced. Uh, It's quite weird out. Um, I don't know if this is true where you are, but basically if you're walking along and you have to stay within two metres apart, so you're kind of weaving around people, negotiating, and there's a lot of smiling and waving and sort of, oh, strange day and talking with people, especially old people. Like I see a lot of old people out walking and uh, some of them are pretty scared, to be honest. So, uh, but having a walk along the canal is a a happy thing. (laughs) So yeah, it's very strange. And then at our supermarket, they've got these lines on the floor with tape. So you stay two meters away from people, a bit like when you're driving, you know, or here in the UK on the motorways, they have times on the motorway where they've got these little chevrons so you can try and keep your distance measure your distance so that's quite interesting and it's very quiet obviously people aren't driving so much uh kids are at home and uh it's just yeah it's quite strange but it's kind of quiet in the environment but it's also very noisy I don't know about you, but it's hard to, I try and stay, well, I'm <laughs> kind of addicted to the news. <laughs> I bet you are too. Uh, and if you're not, I mean, it's good to take a day off now and then, but boy, it moves fast at the moment. And that feels noisy. It feels noisy. And um, I have this feeling as an introvert that I just want to be very, very quiet in the corner. Don't, don't notice me. Don't look at me. Just 
hunker down, be quiet, don't be part of the noise. And of course, I did uh, consider stopping the podcast and uh, all of that. But I'm glad I've carried on. Many of you have said it's useful. And, uh, you know, staying out of the way is is why we're doing this. basically. <laughs> Please, I said to my um, my mum went out for a, a walk on her own. She's been very good, but then she fell like up the stairs a bit and hurt her leg. And I'm like, mum, seriously, if you end up in the hospital with a broken wrist or a broken leg or something right now, then you probably will die because <laughs> you just don't want to go into hospital. So I gave her a bit of a hard word. <laughs> but in fact, talking about parents, it was a relief to have the shutdown. I'm sure like many of you, my parents are in their 70s and and I'm sure some of you have older parents and many of them have not been taking this seriously, (laughs) just kind of running around, having a good time. And um, the shutdown here has made it almost much better. So I don't have to worry about my dad in particular. Uh, He's finally taking it seriously (laughs) and actually staying indoors. He was all ready to go to Portugal on holiday right up till the last minute. So yeah. So I found, yeah, the lockdown helped and I feel like having certainty around, okay, this is how we behave now. That's actually quite good for lessening the anxiety because you like, okay, this is how we behave. Everyone has to behave that way. Um, I'm doing yoga online. I'm managing with my personal trainer. I've got a couple of kettlebells at home. So I'm doing body weight exercises. I am just can't do it without someone having a go at me though. <laughs> so, and I need to do it to offset the quarantine binging. I'm pretty sure you know what I'm talking about. Um, and every day is like, a month's worth of news at the moment. But if you stay away from it, the world is just quiet and calm. And I'm pretty up today because I've, uh, we got up early, did, did a walk. I worked out with my trainer and exercise just really, really helps. But yesterday I had a pretty bad day. I, I just felt I slept badly. I had nightmares. I was really tired. And, uh, Jonathan just said to me, what have you really got to do? And I said, oh, do you know what? You're right. And so I got in the hammock and it was a sunny day. It's really lovely weather here in the UK. It's just so nice. So I got in my hammock and I read the new James Rollins thriller, The Last Odyssey. So I invested in the book economy and I read a book and I felt so much better for just letting it go because I've actually been working really, really hard. And so it was good to just pretend it was a Sunday. And I remembered the Mary Oliver poem, which is a poem I love called Wild Geese. If you don't know it, you should definitely go read it. It's on it's on the internet. You can find it. So Mary Oliver's Wild Geese. And it starts with, you do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. And so yesterday, the soft animal of my body wanted to curl up in the hammock and read a book. (laughs) So that is what I did. So this is a good message because I feel like those of us who do work from home and many of us, and you know, if you're homeschooling your children, if you're trying to do your job from home, this feels like, oh, must, must work harder, must try and shore up money, for example, when I talked about that last week. But equally, 
Uh, and I have been doing all that. I've been in overdrive, just working, working, working. And um, I do feel more in control for doing that work. I'm not saying don't do that work. Obviously, you have to. But there might be moments where you just go, oh, maybe I should take a break, take a breather. And uh, one of my friends said uh, he's actually catching up with a decade of sleep deprivation because he doesn't have to get up early, deal with the kids, um, you know, couples <laughs> staying in bed longer together, having a happy time. Uh, this is this is potentially a good thing. And uh, taking a pause can help you in a time where maybe there are other things in your life you want to think about. And if you see, if you curate your news well, because there's a lot of doom and gloom, there's a lot of noise, a lot of scammers. Oh, I've had so many text messages from, you know, phishing stuff and scammy stuff. It's, uh, it's all all go right now. Um, but if you curate your news, there are some very hopeful signs that wonderfully ingenious and clever humans will sort this out soon enough. And if this is a short, sharp shock and not a prolonged nightmare, then things will be very different next month. You know, maybe instead of 18 months, maybe it will only be a couple of months. I mean, none of us know what's going to happen right now. But um, I was on the towpath yesterday, the canal towpath, and we walked past this little small holding. They have uh, chickens and a donkey and some pigs and uh, geese. It's it's super nice. Everyone loves it. Anyway, they had a little sign outside, a JRR Tolkien quote, uh, which I've put on Instagram and I'll link to in the show notes so you can see the little sign. It's just a handwritten sign. And uh, it says this, I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. So do I, said Gandalf, and so do all who live to see such times but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. So yes, that's a Tolkien quote from Lord of the Rings. And all we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. This is not the zombie apocalypse. (laughs) You don't have to be out fighting. (laughs) You can actually stay home and do something with your time. So this is the question that I'm now starting to think about. Uh, which is, this will be over at some point. What are we going to do with the time that is given us? And is there anything, let's say that next week they just said, oh, everything's fine, here's a vaccine or whatever they decide. Actually, it's all fine now. You can all go back to your life. Are you going to stop and go, oh, well, actually, maybe I wanted a bit more time because I wanted to do that thing, whatever that thing is. So is there anything you might regret not doing? with this time? And that's a really interesting question that I'm thinking about. So take a pause and spend some time um, thinking about that. This also circles back to um, last week I talked about the cycles of grief, the stages of grief, the five stages of grief. And I read um, an article in the uh, Harvard Business Review, which is free, uh, this article, and I'm going to link to this in the show notes. It's called That Discomfort You're Feeling is Grief. But what's interesting is uh, the guy who uh, he wrote this book, um, adding a sixth stage, which I hadn't heard about before this. Uh, The sixth stage of grief is finding meaning. And uh, it's a great interview is with a guy called David Kessler. 
And it does talk about the uh, the grief that we're feeling. And depending on where you are right now, emotionally, <laughs> well, physically and emotionally <laughs> and health wise, obviously, but there are these, you know, five stages. And then the sixth stage, finding meaning. Once you've accepted this, how are you going to see meaning in this event? And I think uh, this consideration of the world has changed. How will our behaviour change? How will society change? What is the meaning that we can find from this is very interesting. So yeah, that is Harvard Business Review, that discomfort you're feeling is grief. So I'll link to that in the show notes. And I hope, I mean, I feel, yeah, I'm feeling definitely up today. I had, as I said, I had a super down yesterday, so quite glad I feel better today. (laughs) But I hope by next week, uh, I can move into sharing some of my thoughts about the future impact of this, because it's something I'm really thinking about. I'm finding this a kind of fascinating in many of the areas that I've been interested in for a while. But uh, we shall see where we are next week. Every week is like a month at the moment, isn't it? Okay, just a couple of things. Uh, There's so much news, but I did want to share that the Alliance of Independent Authors has created a resource talking about the implications of COVID-19 for indie authors. Now, most of us who sell digitally are in a better state than those who mostly sell through physical bookstores. Bookstores are, as as I said, closed in the US and many countries. Um, but this article is updated every day with, with any new ramifications and thoughts on creative challenge, connection with each other and frequently asked questions on the aspects of what this might mean for all of us. So I'll link to it in the show notes, but basically it's selfpublishingadvice.org forward slash authors dash and dash coronavirus. And also, I wanted to share that ACX, which, by the way, is really backed up. My audio for authors is still not on Audible, but it's interesting because I'm making decent money through selling Audio Direct. So um, I'm actually quite grateful that it's not gone through yet because I'm I'm managing to probably, well, definitely make more money from selling direct than from ACX (laughs) and Audible. But just to let you know, I'm already five weeks five weeks since I posted the files and I've heard from others that it's taking months at the moment. So uh, that's interesting, but I wanted to say ACX have said to reduce the financial impact of COVID-19 on the creative community, we are temporarily paying an, a- an additional 5% royalty on all sales of your ACX Audible audiobooks in April, May and June. So if you are exclusive, you get 45%. And if you're non-exclusive, you get 30%. That's actually great. And I really hope more publishers do this, like give an extra 5% to authors. And it just shows you what can be done. And I'm pretty impressed with them doing this. I I do know, though, uh, having experience, have many traditionally published friends who are like, yeah, that's not something that most publishers or would be able to do because their systems are so antiquated that they can't just add on 5%. <laughs> and also, to be fair, I think publishers are going to have a tough time as well. So, But I wanted to share that because that is a great offer and uh, I'm certainly appreciating that. So lots of wonderful comments and tweets and emails about the interview with Austin Cleon, which went down very well last week. And the timing of that posting that was was pretty good, I think. Uh, just a couple of comments. Thank you to everyone. who I, mean, I really got so many, so I'm only going to pick a few, but I appreciate all of them. It's lovely to connect with you more in this time. 
Uh, Carlos Sandoval says, great conversation, honest and alive. Sarah, Sarah Madison says, loved your intro to the episode, agreed with everything you said, especially anger at how much I've taken for granted and ricocheting between dreams of intermittent fasting and hobnobs. And I'm still doing that. Like I said yesterday, another binge day today. Really good. Totally on it. <laughs> um, Stacey Farley says, listening to the show while we wait on the runway. So this was posted a few days ago. Hope the planes are not broken. We're already late. Returning to Australia. Uh, we'll be good to get home. Yes. And uh, I talked about home last week. Alison Ingleby. Hi, Ali, is working out in the garden. Fresh air exercise and words of sanity. Thank you. What else? Oh, I wanted to mention Matty uh, taking direct action from last week's show. Set up direct sales for ebooks on Payhip uh, at payhip.com forward slash William Kingsfield Publishers. Well done, Matty. Fantastic. Uh, and of course, I and in fact, I've just extended my discount. So if you go to payhip.com forward slash the creative pen, use discount quarantine, all caps, you can get 50% off all my ebooks, all my audiobooks that are on there, uh, all through April as well. So um, quarantine capitals, which you should be able to spell because you're all writers. <laughs> and I'm actually, as I said, I'm really happy with the audiobook sales that way. And it's made me very sure one of the things I'm changing is in the future, I will always launch with direct sales first. Like I just think it's sensible. I just don't care that much about ranking anymore, but I do care about income. <laughs> I think that's something that happens over time as you, and maybe as you have more books and, you know, you start to, I mean, it's nice obviously to have a high ranking and it helps with other people finding you. But I, at this point, I just care more about getting income. <laughs> okay, just a couple more. Joe Lobato podcast is a moment of escapism. Uh, as I take my bins out in sunny Tenerife, pretty eerie with empty beaches here. Uh, fantastic. Kimberly Mintz sent uh said she enjoyed the podcast and I purchased these items yesterday, great minds, and <laughs> sent me a picture of five packs of Cadbury's eggs. <laughs> Wonderful. So thank you to everyone. I really appreciate all the pictures of you all and uh, please do continue. That's wonderful. You can tweet me at the creative pen or leave a message on the show notes. Right, today's show is sponsored by Ingram Spark, and I'll play a word from Robin in a minute just to say that I love Ingram Spark and I go wide with print through Ingram. And remember, there is no exclusivity with print, so you can use your KDP print uh, in addition to Ingram Spark. Uh, if you want to have your bookstores in, uh, sorry, your book in bookstores and libraries, as we'll discuss in the interview, you need to have it in the catalogues that they order from. And um, my print print sales are particularly good for non-fiction and I do print on demand, paperback, large print and hardback with Ingram Spark. And I love the fact that we can do print on demand hardback. Um, so more tips coming up in the interview, but just to say I am uh, a heavy user 
of Ingram Spark. So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my time in creating this show is sponsored by my patrons, uh, for whom I am more grateful than ever at this time. Uh, so thanks to everyone supporting the show on Patreon. Thanks especially also to those of you who've increased your pledge this month. I really appreciate that. And a number of you have done that. Thanks to all the patrons from all the years, but also new patrons, Sarah, Jessica Halsey, Nina Lubrin, Denise Yoko Burnt and Roger Sisson. I really appreciate your support on Patreon. Like the tweets and emails, it demonstrates you enjoy the show and want it to continue. You can support the show with just a couple of dollars a month and you'll get the extra Q&A audio, which I, I did put out this week. And if you're a patron, you will have that. And if you join the Patreon, you will get the whole backlist so you can learn lots and lots more. Support the show at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, here's a word from Ingram Spark, and then we'll get on to the interview. Are you ready to take that bold step forward and finally publish your book? Well, now's the time to do it. Hi, everyone. I'm Robin Cutler, director of Ingram Spark, an award-winning indie publishing platform that offers authors like you a way to publish your book and share it with over 39,000 bookstores and libraries worldwide. Knowledge is power, and we believe authors should be knowledgeable. That's why we offer education through our weekly blog and podcast featuring industry experts and even online courses on how to self-publish and market your books. Let us take care of the details so you can focus on what you do best, which is writing. You have a story to tell, and we want to help you share it. Get started today at www.ingramspark.com. Mark Leslie Lefebvre writes horror, travel books, and non-fiction for writers. He's a podcaster at Stark Reflections on writing and publishing, a professional speaker, and a publishing consultant at Drafter Digital. He's also a regular on this show over the years. And today we're talking about his latest book, An Author's Guide to Working with Libraries and Bookstores. Welcome back, Mark. Oh, Joe, it's so great to be here. I, I'm I'm so thrilled that you continue to invite me back on the podcast. It's like it's like hanging out in a in a favorite cafe, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I know. I mean, listeners generally know both of us by now, which is nice because we can skip all the preliminaries. But I do want before we get into the um, into the book, you were last on the show in December 2018. So you know, over a year now. Um, so I guess 16 months or something by the time this goes out. Um, and you were talking about tips for long-term publishing success. Um, and I wondered, maybe just give us an update since then. What's changed for you? Because of course you are an author, but you also do lots of other things. So what's been happening for you in the last 16 months? Oh, uh, let's see. Uh, I got engaged to be married. So oh, I was pretty yes. excited. Yeah, that was, that was kind of, that was personally, that was a really fun one. Um, <laughs> so that, that's a major, that's a major difference. Uh, in terms of, I, I don't think much has changed in terms of thinking long-term success. And I don't think most of my long-term or larger strategies have changed. What I have changed personally is I've changed um, doubling down on actually getting some writing done. You know, I left I left um, my corporate life at the end of 2017, sort of to strike out uh, and be a little bit more independent. Of course, I couldn't I couldn't resist going going back part time and and helping uh, draft a digital, uh, build some really cool things for authors uh, for 20 hours a week. But um, 
I think, and, and I think it was, it was November of this last year of 19, uh, 2019 that I decided to take, so instead of trying to write a novel, I used a uh, part of November at least to finish off, um, a book that I had been working on in the Stark Publishing Solutions series, a book on, um, you know, uh, libraries and bookstores. And, and, and what I'm trying to do, and, and I take this cue from you a lot is I set out these goals at the beginning of the year, and this is what I plan on doing. And, and when I looked at my goals from the previous year, I went, okay, so I had 12 things here and I only did three of them, <laughs> but, but I did 16 other things. Uh, and instead of beating myself up for, for doing a course correction or changing over the year, I just accepted it. I accepted the fact that I'm going to, it's, it's like when you outline a, a, a novel, uh, if you outline a novel, which I, I rarely do, but when you outline a novel, you, you have an idea of where it's going to go, but sometimes the characters will take you in a direction. And, and in the same way that that's important for your writing, I think you may have a goal and, and your writing or the things that you do may inspire you when you're on the route or, or you're, you're, you're on a path and you're walking and you plan on getting to this one place, but you see this, this branch going off in this other direction and it's fascinating and you're compelled. Your gut tells you to follow that path. So I stopped beating myself up over following those things or just kind of going with the flow. So, I mean, from a writing perspective, uh, I, I initially started, you know, almost two years ago to work on a book that I was going to be my big magnum opus of like my 30 plus years of working in the book industry. The, um, what, what the heck was it going to be called? The Indies guide to, um, everything successful. Yeah. Yeah. Everything. <laughs> and, and three books have come out of that, but I haven't finished writing that book. Like the seven P's of publishing success came out of that. It was going to be a chapter that kind of exploded and got to be too long. Killing it on Kobo was supposed to be a, you know, a chapter. Then, you know, once I hit 20,000 words, I'm like, yeah, this is going to be a book. And then even the working with bookstores and libraries, um, where it was supposed to be a chapter in the book and it just became its own book. So I, I'm, I'm not beating myself up for still not finishing the other book. I'm realizing I did three other books because of that one. So yeah, I think um, I think accepting that is good, right? Yeah. And it's funny because uh, I was talking to someone about this. They're like, how do you get ideas for nonfiction books? It's like, well, you write a nonfiction book and then you realize how many more <laughs> nonfiction books you're going to write. And I think the same is true with novels. You know, you write, you're writing something and you're like, oh, that's a good idea, but that doesn't fit with this one. So I'll put that in my idea box for later. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think, uh, and, and as we know, having more books is better than just one book. So I think you're doing the right thing. But let's let's get into the book um, because it's very timely uh, talking about <laughs> libraries. So why? Let's talk about libraries first. Why is now such a great time for indies to consider library distribution? Well, I'm sure most indies who are paying attention are familiar with what Macmillan Books has been doing. Um, in general, the, the big publishers, the major publishers have been charging libraries significantly more for the, the one-to-one -one licensing, which is uh, they sell a book to the library and that means they can loan that book to one patron at a time. Um, for, well, for indies, it's indefinite, but for a lot of the major publishers, there's a clause in the contract that says after 30 people, I've gotten the book. You have to buy it again. And they're, they're charging upwards of 30, 50, 80, a hundred dollars for these books. Well, on top of that ridiculousness, Macmillan had decided that they were going to uh, limit it. So um, not allow libraries to buy more than one copy of the book within the first X period of time, like 30 days, 60 days, um, uh, six months, whatever. And so what this means for indies is 
not only are these books overpriced and outrageously expensive, but the libraries can't actually buy more copies. It used to be the case where I, I would take an example. So Lee Child, for example, is with a major publisher, but Diane Caprey writes the Hunt for Jack Reacher series, which is the only authorized Reacher books in that universe. And Diane's books are, you know, averaging about $5 each, whereas to, for a library to buy um, a Reacher book, let's say it's $80. Well, you can buy almost the entire Hunt for Reacher series from Diane Caprey mm. and satisfy tons of readers at the library for the price of one Reacher book uh, from Lee Child. And and so there's a great opportunity for authors, particularly authors who know who their comps are in the big publishing world. So you know, reaching out to libraries and letting them know that this is, you know, this will appeal those readers. Because if you go, you can go on Overdrive, for example, um, you know, I'm, I'm near Hamilton, Ontario, Waterloo, Ontario. Some of the libraries actually show you the waiting list uh, where you can see that, you know, the, the library has three copies, but they're all taken and there's 600 people on the waiting list. <laughs> so so you, you look at those things and you go, "Ooh, I write in that genre. I can appeal to that. So the other thing, and this is just news, I just uh, I just had a meeting with uh, a representative from Overdrive, who's a you know, major supplier to the library markets. And historically, Overdrive used to split their catalog into um all books from major publishers and then the self-publishing ghetto. Mm. And when libraries would go to search for books, they often would only, it'd be, it'd be like you, you normally use Google to search, but then you don't go on um, Yahoo as well. You usually just use your main search engine and you forget to go to the second one if you don't find what you find, right? Mm. So a lot of times indies were at a disadvantage because uh, if the library was buying from Overdrive and they, and they were looking for stuff, they often didn't look in the, in the ghetto. They didn't look in that self-publishing sort of um, swamp. But Overdrive finally, after appeal, um, and, and, and this is a, a shifting change in the library market for indies, is, is there are librarians that are very fascinated and interested in the amazing stuff that readers are loving, right? Like it's exploding on Kindle, it's exploding on Kobo and Apple. And, and so the libraries are interested in finding more of these diamonds in the rough. And so now, just within the last couple of weeks, and this is, uh, what are we, the middle of February when we're recording this, the Overdrive uh, library system is no longer partitioned. It's a master database. So Ooh. the indie titles are – yeah, I know. Isn't that amazing? It's great. For, for, <laughs> yeah. So this is from the first time since – well, when it first launched, it was that way. And then and then some a whole bunch of crap got in and libraries got really frustrated. So Overdrive had no choice but to uh, partition it. But this is fantastic. And even, you know, from, from my – Roland drafted digital. We've already seen without even having, we haven't even launched the first major promotion with overdrive this year, but um, we've already noticed the sales on their own are going up. So this is a, this is, there's never been a better time for authors to be focusing on the, on that library market. That is cool. So you mentioned you're in Ontario in Canada. I'm in the UK. You've mentioned Overdrive as one example of a library uh, accessible digital catalogue. But just explain what it what the library sis, uh, ecosystem is like. So is it international? Um, you know, are there different uh, other databases? What about physical books? Like just explain a bit more because I don't think most people know. I certainly don't know. Oh, for sure. I mean, there's so many. When it comes to digital, I mean, you have Overdrive, which is major, and, it, and it's very North American-centric, although they are worldwide. You have Baker & Taylor, which is another one for um, uh, still sticking with digital. You have places like Hoopla. You have uh, Bibliotheca. 
and and there's there's more and more available for digital books uh, for library for for people to get into library systems. There's probably about eight or ten in total, and that's just for digital books. For print books, you have the major wholesalers who do print book distribution, and we're talking Ingram, which you can get into most easily through Ingram Spark, and then you have Baker and Taylor, which is also a major library market. Not sure what's going on with the merger there, but they're two major ones. Those are probably the two best ways to get into most library systems. Some libraries will actually acquire locally sometimes, but they typically are only looking at acquiring front list titles. And uh, that's an important thing for authors to consider. Whereas on, you know, on a major platform like uh, on Amazon, you can, you can re- regurgitate or, or re- resurrect a, a backlist, you know, by, by putting a new cover on, uh, fancying up the blurb or whatever, and just kind of going whole hog with some advertising. Libraries, unless there's a, a hook for a new release in a series or, or a new book from an author where the, that author is suddenly hot and popular, they're not really looking at backlists. So in a lot of ways, um, the librarians are are major curators, right? So they have access to millions of titles through these major distributors and wholesalers uh, in both print, digital, and, and of course, in audiobook too. And I, and I shouldn't ignore audiobook because – I mean, the way that I use uh, to get into most library systems is through Findaway Voices. And Findaway Voices, I think, has at least a dozen different ways that you can get your audiobook uh, into libraries. Um, so that's does, – does that sort of cover, you know, sort of the, the ways you can get your, your books in libraries? Yes, I, although I uh, you're <laughs> remiss in not mentioning Draft2Digital as a way to get your ebooks. <laughs> Well, of course. Yeah, yeah. And you know what I was thinking about, right? Because I was thinking, well, who does draft to digital distribute to? And yeah, of course, draft to digital can get you into overdrive. And and, and, and are we going to talk about the licensing difference between one to one and cost per checkout? Or is that, yeah, is yeah, that coming yeah, up later? Yeah. Go, go for it. Okay. So just as an example, um, because I used to work at Kobo and uh, with Kobo Writing Life. So um, Kobo and Overdrive are, are still sort of sister companies. Overdrive's on, on the way to be purchased um, and moved out to a separate company, but that relationship's not going to change. So in case anyone's panicking about that. But with Kobo Writing Life, uh, when you when you opt into Overdrive, um, there's the one-to-one license, which I explained earlier. But then there's an additional license which is available through Overdrive as well as through some of the other uh, distributors um, that Draft2Digital makes your books available in. And that's the cost per checkout model. And the difference between the one-to-one and the cost per checkout is the one-to-one is very heavily curated by the library with a budget. And I have $10,000 to spend this month on library books and I want to get these – I want to purchase these books and make them available to my patrons. Well, the cost per checkout model tends to look at more at, okay, I have $10,000 – I'm going to take all the new releases and make them visible the the same way that your books are visible on Kindle. Like they're just there, right? There's no curation. They're just published and they're all available however you find them. Mm. And then they let the patrons decide what books they want. And then uh, they may turn that off once the money runs out, right? But the idea is the difference is the curation where somebody says, I think of the – you know, of the 100,000 books published this month, I think these 5,000 or these 1,000 are the books that a patron should have, as opposed to saying, all right, of the 100,000 books published this month, have at our patrons and you decide what you want. And and the librarians will use that as a way to, to determine, well, what are people wanting that we're not showing them? So with the cost per checkout model, instead of getting the, you know, the 50% that you get if you went through Cobra Writing Life or the 47% you get going through draft to digital cost per checkout, you're getting about one-tenth. So let's pretend your, your your library price is ten dollars, and so you get you know either five dollars or four four dollars and ninety something change. I can't do math in my head very well, <laughs> but 
Instead of that, you're getting a dollar per checkout. But uh, let's imagine a book club says, hey, we're going to do Joanna Penn's uh, latest book on audio for authors, and we all want to read it at the same time. In the in the one-to-one model, if they all rush down to the local library and ask for a copy and, and the, they only purchased one, they got to wait until that person's done with the book and then the next person can get it. But in the cost per checkout model, all 30 people can get it, borrow it from the library at once. And instead of making the one sale of the $5, you would make $30, for example. Mm-hmm. And so, it again, it's, it's, it's part of that long-term thinking. And I learned about the value of cost per checkout actually through uh, audiobooks with Findaway Voices because when I was looking at uh, – I have a lot of shorter audiobooks there. And when I was looking at where I was making my money back quickly and actually paying for these uh, 10,000, 15,000 words books, um, audiobooks that would never sell on Audible because of the you know the $15 per month credit system, mm. I realized that – I was making the majority of my money from this cost per checkout system from Biblioteca and Hoopla and a whole bunch of other uh, platforms. And I went, oh, cost per checkout is a better long term strategy for earning money. Uh, so that's uh, that's something I think that's really valuable to think about when you think about the library market. Don't just think about getting into one system. Think about getting into as many systems as possible. And also, you know, through draft to digital, you have the means to to say, yes, I will allow cost per checkout. So you have to consciously go in and, and make that change. No, that's fantastic. So let's just round it up for people. Uh, so if you want to get a print book into a library, uh, they'll order it from something like Ingram. So we can publish yes. wide. Uh, they won't order it from Amazon. This is a big thing. Oh, right? for sure. Yeah, oh, yeah. So you need to publish your print book wide. Um, and Ingram Spark being the, you know, the, the one we recommend. Uh, I know, <laughs> and I've, I love draft to digital you know this, but as I've said, it's very North American focused. So um, their print books, uh, won't be, I imagine, in global library distribution. Would that be fair uh, to say? They'll, they'll be through uh, Ingram, basically. It, it's, I think of draft to digital print kind of like Ingram Spark Ultralight. Ultralight, about, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Ingram Spark to get print books in. Then audio, as we've mentioned, uh, find a way. Again, if you're just exclusive on ACX, you won't get your audio books into libraries. And also ebooks. Again, if you're exclusive on Amazon, you won't get your ebooks into libraries, but you can get your ebooks in through Drafts of Digital, also Smashwords, Publish Drive. Um, also do have some uh, distribution to those services. And so you've mentioned that that pretty much covers the the main ways, right? Yeah, but can I go back and Mm. just say one thing I like to say? People, when they look at Kindle Direct Publishing and they see extended distribution in Amazon, I want to remind people that I like to call that pretended distribution. Yeah. (laughs) Because you feel like your book is being distributed, but it's short discount, non-returnable, very, very crappy terms for bookstores and libraries. Just remember, extended distribution equals pretended distribution. Yes. So those of us who publish print-wide, don't click that button. We just (laughs) publish on KDP and then log into Ingram and publish there as well. In fact, I'm doing that right now with audio for authors as we record this. Um, But let's just also circle back on the money because we all like to get paid. So if a library buys a book, as you say, we can set the price in these systems and it's normally, you know, I normally put mine a little bit higher, but not like $50 or $80, more like maybe $15 for a full length Nonfiction would that be okay? Yeah, uh, so I mean, uh, both draft to digital and, and Cobo Writing Life, based on uh, converse, long conversations with uh, Overdrive as one of the major distributors, uh, they say two or three times the price. But Overdrive did inform me that 
librarians will actually go and look. So if your book is priced at 99 cents and then you're pricing the, the you know, ridiculously higher, like the magnitudes of 10 or 15 times the price, librarians are going to go, come on, you're ripping us off. Come on. Because they're people <laughs> too, right? So um, two to three times the price is uh, usually recommended because even at two to three times uh, the retail price for library price, you're still coming in significantly cheaper. Now, uh, one of my one of my uh, co-authors, uh, Maddie Dalrymple, on, on a book we just released uh, recently, uh, she had actually – she uses library prices that are uh, closer to $20, and she's been doing well. Mm. So uh, – and because I, I looked at her prices, and I go, Maddie, that's really high. And she's like, yeah, but the, but the libraries are buying them because, again, her, her mysteries that she writes – are still significantly cheaper than the other mysteries uh, that are, uh, you know, $50, $60, $80. So it's still a deal for the libraries. Mm. Okay, so there's that one price. There's the cost per checkout, which, again, I also agree with you, I think is fantastic. Um, But also there is public lending rights, which we should mention. So here in the UK, we have uh, ALCS, the Licensing, Authors Licensing and Collecting Service. So if anyone's listening in the UK uh, and Ireland, I think it's UK and Ireland, you know, an island, uh, you can basically load your ISBNs and you get paid for lending. So things like library lending. So it's one of those kind of hidden streams of income that a lot of people forget. And you mentioned that in the book, don't you? Because you have the same oh, in Canada. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, most of the Commonwealth countries have it. I think there's 36 countries around the world that actually have public lending rights. The US is one of the holdouts where they don't. Sorry, <laughs> sorry listeners in the US, oh, we love you. For but, once, yeah. we have something that the Americans don't. <laughs> Well, I mean, in Canada, we we have the right to bear ISBNs, but uh, but so with public lending rights, uh, and you can you can Google uh, the term and and find out which if your country uh, applies. It is a phenomenal system. I mean, my very first check from so public. So I'll use a traditionally published book, for example. Like if I have a traditionally published book, I can still register it or a self-published book. Uh, in Canada now, they now allow uh, ebooks, audiobooks, and print books, so you can register all three. And and you get something like uh, thirty dollars uh, in Canada at least every time they they do a random sampling of libraries and if they find your book in stock at a library they go okay this is lost royalties for this author and we want libraries to stock Canadian or or, or UK authors or whatever whatever the country right the, the authors from their home country and we know that that represents lost royalties now when I sell a book through a traditional publisher I'll get two dollars for that book mm-hmm. but if it's in the library I'll get thirty dollars every time they find it in the library. <laughs> So, I mean, I would have made, uh, you know, $2 off the sale to the library, but then I'll make $30. In in the early checks I got in the early days, uh, because I've been in the public lending rights program for more than a dozen years, I believe, or 10 years at least. Mm. Uh, The early days, it was, you know, a a $50 check or a $30 check or a $24 check. Hey, it's gravy. It's extra money, right? Mm. Last year. Uh, just because my bill from a March break trip that uh, Liz and I took, the bill came in just around the same time that the public lending right check came in. And and the check I got from the public lending right was actually enough to pay for my trip to the Dominican Republic. So it's not <laughs> chump change anymore. So if you're in a Commonwealth country, and in most countries, I know in Canada, it's between February. So we're in February right now. February and May is when you register all books published in the previous year. Yeah, I've just uploaded all yeah. my latest ISBNs as well. So uh, that is, I do not discredit public lending rights. It's an amazing opportunity for, again, multiple streams of revenue, right? As many different streams as you can get. 
Yeah, and let's be clear. I mean, my PLR is nothing like <laughs> a trip to the Dominican <laughs> Republic, but it's um, it, you know, it's another hundred quid. It's another hundred and fifty quid, or maybe it's ten quid. You know, whatever. It's it's one of those things, as you say. It's the attitude of, look, there's all these different ways that people want to consume books. Uh, many people use the libraries for many different reasons, and one of the great things that uh, about libraries, of course, is it's free to the end user. And this is why when you're, and this is a marketing tip, and I'll ask you in a minute, my marketing tip <laughs> is, please, everybody go to your library and request books by indies. It might not be your book, it might be someone else's book, or and also include in your email list, um, your maybe your email autoresponder or something like, you can get my books for free in your library. Just go and ask your librarian or go into your catalogue and you should be able to find them. And I've heard from people all over the world now where my audiobooks, my ebooks are in the library and also some librarians have ordered the print copies. So that's kind of my tip is we need to tell our readers to go borrow our books and not just think that's a lost sale because I I feel like many authors don't want to tell readers to get books from the library because they don't feel they get money. But we have proved that you do get money. So what what are some other ways that we can market (laughs) our books to librarians or encourage this behaviour? yeah, that, that's one great way. And another thing, uh, Joanna, that's really critical, particularly for authors who, I mean, there are a million books in a million podcasts and a million interviews on how to game Amazon, basically, which is what it is, how to game Amazon's algorithms and make money off of Kindle Unlimited, right? That mm. we, that's, that's the ecosystem we live in. When you're, when you're going to publish wide, it's like, well, how do I sell on the other platforms? How do I do this? How do I do that? How do I deal with the people who I've trained to read my books for free? And I use air quotes when I say that, uh, from Kindle Unlimited. What do I do when they yell at me because they're mad at me and they say, I'm, I refuse to buy your books? You say, well, now, not just people who read only on one single platform, which may be, you know, the world's biggest bookstore and maybe huge in, in the, the UK and in, in uh, the US. Now everyone can get my books for free at the library, including you. So you can still get all my books for free through the library system. You just have to go ask. So you can still appease those Kindle Unlimited readers. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one thing. The, the the other thing for marketing, I like to think about um, – so obviously the newsletter is a critical one. Let your fans know, hey, you can get all my books for free. Go ask for them. They're in print. They're in audio. They're in uh, ebook, etc. cetera. But um, I, I like to start local. Right. So start local and uh, and reach out to the local library and let them know you're a local author because they're curating. And it's not just the acquisitions person, but the reference librarian who has been my best friend forever. Almost every library I go to, they're the nerd, the data nerd that loves to know information and loves to gather stuff. So, for example, um, you know, thinking about your books, uh, Joanna, you, you not only have the local interest, like the local uh, library in Bath, where you can contact them and let them know you're a local author who writes international books, international <laughs> thrillers, but you can reach out to libraries in all these different countries because your books are set all over the world and, and let them know that this book is set here. This book is set there, right? So you can use all kinds of local uh, to, to promote your to, to promote the book and let them know because oftentimes people will come into the library maybe it's uh, students looking for oh I'm, I'm told to read a Canadian author are there any Canadian authors besides Margaret Atwood like so there's that kind of right so it's like yeah well we have these authors from Waterloo where I live and and so that's the kind of thing uh, that's really good for the library to know so don't don't not I uh, always start local uh, but then local can be you know, books that are set in a in a in a city, and you can let them know, hey, this is a series I wrote, and it's set in this, and here's why it's set here. 
Um, you can, it, it's the same thing you would do to share sometimes with your, you know, the personal touches that you share in your uh, author newsletter. Mm. Uh, librarians are humans too. And, the, and they like those stories uh, as our books, booksellers, right? That those, those, um, those human stories are really what help ultimately connect a reader with your book through those people who do a lot of that curation for you. Mm, fantastic. Right. Well, now everyone's going to sort out the libraries. Uh, let's move on to bookstores because helpfully the uh, your book covers both, which I think is great because they are similar in, in many ways. Um, so many, again, many authors think that it's enough to publish on KDP print. We briefly mentioned it before, uh, but can you just go into a, uh, a bit more about the bookstore business model and why discounts are so necessary? Yeah. So, I mean, unlike every other retailer in the world, the actual discount that bookstores get uh, on books is actually very minimal. It's like between 40 and 50% usually. And most other retail systems, the markup is 80, 100, 300%, whatever, right? You can go and buy, hey, I got this, I got this dress for 75% off plus another $20 off plus another 20% off. I paid $10 for it. Yeah, well, they probably paid $1.50 for it initially. So they're not losing money on that sale. Whereas the margin on books is so significantly lower. You want to see how crappy the margin on books is Go into a WH Smith or a Barnes and Noble or a Chapters Indigo. Sorry, I've covered three countries there. Go into a major <laughs> chain bookstore and look at how much uh, tchotchkes and knickknacks and gift crap is there. The reason that stuff is there is because the margin on that product is ridiculously high, whereas the margin on books is only 40 or 50%. So when you start moaning and whining, bookstores want 50%, 40%, right? Sorry, that margin is minimal for every other retailer in the world. Um, but the bookstore model is, uh, consignment based, basically, uh, it kind of harkens back to the great depression where bookstores said, well, we can't afford to buy books anymore because, you know, we have to write, we have to write off stuff that doesn't sell. And most of it doesn't sell. And publishers came up with the idea that, oh, well, well you can return it for a full credit. So, uh, the one thing, uh, indies can do is you can publish your book. Even if you're using something like Ingram spark, you're typically with print on demand, it's non-returnable. And so it's very unlikely for a bookstore to order your book in. Uh, the reason we uh, poo-poo the idea of Amazon and their pretended distribution is Amazon will automatically short discount it to 20%, which makes it not feasible for the for the bookstore. But uh, it's also non-returnable. So so a bookstore really, really, really has to want that book in there. And and they, they have to really, 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 really want your book so much that they look at the other thousand books that are available in the same topic in the same category that are fully returnable and they get a 40 to 50 percent discount. So with Ingram Spark, you can set a higher discount. Um, there's even cases uh, I wouldn't recommend it because I got burned in 2004 when I first self-published and I made my book fully returnable because I thought, well, hey, I'm a bookseller. I know, I know how this works. It was great. I could call Barnes & Noble and say, hey, I'm going to be there in three months. I'd love to do a lunchtime book signing. I see your downtown location. So I understood the demographics of the store. I knew when the traffic flow would be in, people on their lunch breaks and stuff like that. Uh, and it would be great. They'd order in like 10 copies or 10 or 20 copies. I'd come in, I'd sign, I'd sell half to three quarters of them, and then they'd return the rest of them. Everything Thing was fine until a buyer at uh, Chapters Indigo in Canada caught wind of my book and ordered over 300 copies to put put them in stores across the country. So some of the major stores, but they had one or two copies spined. Mm. And because I wasn't there signing, it was great when the check came in and not so great six months later when I lost more money on the return than I gained on the sale. Yeah, <laughs> so, I would also say don't yeah. do returns. Um, no, 
just don't do it. It's not necessary. Um, you know, as you say, and I think, again, what you you mentioned it slightly there, but um, bookstores are not just going to magically order your book and stock them on the shelves. Uh, you actually have to be pretty proactive to yeah. do that. Um, and in my case, I've had, you know, for example, speaking at speaking events, the bookstore at a literary festival will order the books of the speakers um, yeah. or uh, a bookstore uh, the other week was doing a self-publishing event and ordered some of my books into their store in Michigan. But they actually ended up contacting me directly and buying them directly off me wow. rather than through the catalogue. So that was interesting because they said they couldn't get a steep enough discount. So could oh. I sell them, you know, just with a bit of a, a tiny margin? So I ended yeah. up doing that myself. But but just so people know, I'm in the UK, the bookstores in Michigan, I just ordered them myself off Ingram Spark and shipped them straight there. So, oh, perfect. Yeah. So, but you can't, again, you can't do that. Oh, actually, it's funny because I did say to them, look, it actually would be about $5 cheaper if I, or, you know, in total, if I order it from Amazon. And they said, no, we don't want no. you to do that. <laughs> <laughs> We'd rather pay more than give those. Yeah, yeah give exactly. <laughs> so be aware that there's also a political angle to having your books, your books wide. <laughs> oh, for sure. Uh, and here's a way around the return. So, I mean, uh, Sarah Rosette, uh, we were both at Novelist Sync in Florida last year. And I was excited because one of my traditionally published books was on the bookstore shelves because I wrote about Haslam's bookstore. So obviously they always keep a copy in stock because of the ghost of Jack Kerouac there. But um, I was excited and I was like, oh, I always go in and I sign copies and I chat with the owners and and, and, and whatever. And sometimes here if there's new sightings of Jack. But um, Sarah Rosette was in the mystery section and three of her self-published titles were in stock. And we went over and talked to the manager and he said, oh, that's because – uh, customers requested them. And so we thought we would carry them. Now, Sarah actually did make her books, um, returnable, fully mm. returnable, but th there's a risk. Like if, if a bookstore is going to order one or two copies, the risk of returns is not that bad. I almost had a, a coronary when I said, you made them fully returnable. What are you, what are you, are you crazy? Um, because of what happened to me, but it's very rare that a, a chain bookstore is going to buy a, a big whack load of them. <laughs> Although if it happens, you're, you're toast, which is why I still recommend don't <laughs> go with returns, but here's a way around it. Uh, when I go to do an event, uh, even if it's traditionally published sometimes, and I want I want to make sure the bookstore has enough stock, what I'll often do, and this is because I do a lot of um, in-person book fairs. I do a lot of Comic-Cons because my ghost story books and my thrillers and horror, they tend to sell well to that crowd. And so I do a lot of those in-person events. Um, I'll offer to the bookstore, you know, if you, if you order my book, I know it's non-returnable, but you get a full discount on it um, from Ingram. Uh, what I will do is I'll buy out your remaining stock so you're not stuck with it because you think of the bookstore as a business, right? Mm -hmm. And they, they need to pay the bills. But could you please give me your staff discount so that, you know, and that's often like a 30% discount or even if it was a 20% discount. That way I have stock at a, a price where I'm going to make money when I when I resell that book uh, directly uh, at, at different author events. And the bookstore is not stuck with it. And they still make a little bit of margin and they don't have to mark it down and they don't have to be stuck with it. And nine times out of ten, as long as you have a, a decent relationship with the bookstore, they're willing to accommodate that because they look at it and go, you know, it's a pass-through sale basically. Um, whether or not people show up for this loser uh, at his book event <laughs> – we're still going to sell copies because uh, you got to remember, it's a lot of work for them to do an event. It, it's not just the buying the books and putting them out. It's it's any of the advertising they do, putting up printing posters, putting them up, having, you know, moving furniture around in some cases where they have to or uh, adding it to their newsletter. It, it is quite a bit of work for them to, to put on an event. So you have to remember 
uh, from their perspective, right? They want, they're doing the event because they want to bring people into the store and, uh, and, and they, they want to actually sell books. Uh, yeah. That's kind of their goal, right? Yeah. I think, and this is why I fundamentally, I think authors get this wrong is because they are thinking about themselves. So it's natural, you know, we're authors, we want to make money by selling our yes. books. But when you're thinking about libraries and bookstores, you have to turn your head around to another perspective, which is, this is a business, the bookstore is a business and the library also has revenue that comes in and they have expenses and they have to pay their bills and everything. So if you as an author think about it from their perspective and see what you can do to make their life easier, then it's going to be far more effective. Um, and, it, you know, the events is really interesting because in Bath here, we have one of the independent bookstores, Toppings, is famous for its events. It basically has author events, you know, several times a week, every week. And I can see that their business model is mainly do you know, down to events and then the, the, the book sales they get off the back of events. Um, they, oh, and wow. also on that, they another thing they do, which is brilliant, is they do hard signed hardbacks that they cover in cellophane. So they're sealed hardbacks that are signed. So they're premium edition hardbacks signed and then sealed in cellophane. So you can see, you can see the cover and everything, but they're like a premium product. And I wanted to ask you about this. Most indies will do a paperback now, but um, I'm now doing large print and hardback editions. But I've heard from some uh, listeners that they do hardback large print as well. I know, I know. And then, of course, we've got audiobook. So if we want to get into libraries and bookstores, what what formats uh, are appropriate? Well, I think uh, hardcovers and, and, and large print are, are critical because there's a, there's a demographic that I mean, every ebook is a large print book, but there, there's a demographic, a huge majority of readers are still not reading ebooks, mm. but they may want large print. So that's critical. And, and again, you're standing out, uh, as, as you've said multiple times on your podcast, uh, and I hope listeners are paying attention to you. <laughs> <laughs> they, they should, but, uh, you, you're going to stand out because very, like, you know, very few people have an audiobook, Very few people have large print, the hardcover, and you got to remember this. So libraries want people to read, like, so bookstores have to sell the books and make money, right? That, that's an in and out kind of thing. And the tenants have to pay the rent, that kind of thing with a library, they pay their rent by circulation. So it's kind of like we want people to check these books out and take them out and bring them back and take them out and bring them back. We want that. But the more that that happens with a paperback, it'll wear out a lot faster than a hardcover. So hardcovers are more durable. So, yeah, it may be an extra $10 for the library to buy a hardcover or $5 or whatever the price difference is, but it'll probably last almost twice as long. So when you have a hardcover, you suddenly become that much more appealing to libraries and you become more appealing to collectors because I'm, I'm, uh, when I was at Kobo, I, I'll never forget this one stat that had been done early on in the days of eBooks when eBooks were, you know, 600% rise year over year and all the growth, uh, we had learned based on demographics and studies we had done with customers that people who were reading ebooks were buying twice as many print books as they used to. Mm. Now, the ebook is a replacement for the mass market, you know, the fast read. I just want to get on a plane and I want to read a fun thriller or a mystery and get it over with. But then when you want the actual physical object and you're going to spend extra money you've already spent on the ebook, maybe having that beautiful hardcover on your shelves as a collector <laughs> is uh, maybe that for, for, for book buyers as well, that may be a thing. So, if, you know, going to, let's just go to your Amazon page and you go, there's Joanna's book and there's five different versions available minimum. So I can choose what's best for me. 
And so again, uh, the way uh, an author should think about the library, think about the bookstore, think about the consumer. What does the consumer want? And give them as much choice as possible. Mm, I think that's a really good long-term strategy. Yeah. And this, um, coming back to the hardback again, because I was never convinced. And I think it's partly it was my time of life because we, (laughs) you know, I've been quite minimal for many years and then we bought a house and now I'm I'm ridiculous like if I listen to a lot of audiobooks now um super super audio listener and if I love an audiobook I buy the hardback so now I'm I'm starting a library of like and these are all non-fiction I you know pretty much only keep non-fiction <laughs> sorry fiction <laughs> writers um but I've got you know I'm 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 buying these hardback as you say collector's editions uh in order to remind myself of those books or to find quotes later on or, or whatever. And so it, again, this multiple format thing is very powerful. And something that I think many digital only kind of authors forget um, that readers want things. The other thing is on secondhand bookstores. It was Dean Wesley Smith who convinced me on this. Uh, <laughs> he basically said something something like a second uh, hardback book will go through seven people in its lifetime. Yeah. Because a paperback book often get, as you said, gets kind of tatty and you don't want to gift it. Whereas if you enjoy a hardback, but you don't want to keep it on your shelf and you might pass it on to someone it's going to make it through far more people so it becomes marketing which is you know kind of cool as well so those are some reasons to do all these different editions of course remember people we are not suggesting if you're just starting out that you go and do every single edition (laughs) under the sun (laughs) it can can be expensive and time-wise right but but it's a good long-term strategy i i I, Mm. and again it's funny I, i tell people to do it and and i've done it very rarely (laughs) <laughs> so I'm still, well, well, I'm still am, behind in it, right? I'm a paragon of virtue. I now do every every uh, new book I'm doing in in those five editions. So. <laughs> And you're doing and you're doing something very professional that I think is sets you up uh, in yet another way as as a consummate professional is you're often releasing all of them roughly around the same time yeah, period. The same time. Like, oh, the audiobook's coming out six weeks later or anything like that. You're doing them all together, which is fantastic. Do you know? And it's funny. I was thinking about that today because as we just before we were speaking, I'm uploading the audio files and I'm proofing the print copy, and I'm like. <laughs> I I can't see why publishers can't do this for authors. Like I really don't understand why this is not possible. Um, most I what ninety nine percent of publishers are not putting books out in all of these formats at all the same time, mainly because they don't use print on demand. I assume so they just well, don't bother. It's also a legacy historic, right? And, and this is the windowing that you see even on ebook pricing. When the ebook price first comes out, it's this ridiculous hardcover style price. And that's because uh, in traditional publishing, uh, you know, hardcover would come out and then a year later, the trade paperback or the mass market would come out. And that was so that the most expensive edition could have a chance to go through Christmas, which is the big, most bookstores bleed money all year round and then make money between September and uh, the end of December. Mm. <laughs> That's the only time they made. I mean, there were bookstores that I managed where, you know, yeah, we, we bled all year and then we made all the money for the whole year. Just like the 20% of books make, you know, 80% of the profits. Uh, those three months, that last quarter of the year is where most bookstores actually turn a profit and enough of a profit to make up for the loss the rest of the year. So publishers got into the habit of wanting the most expensive version available for Christmas, the best you know gift buying season of the year. Mm. 
And so that's where this silliness of windowing comes <laughs> but, in uh, and, with digital. Let's be clear, it's crazy in this day and age, yeah. because to me, the moment I hear about a book, like it's a book I really want to buy that's coming out, it's a novel, and it's only available in the hardback. It's not even on Kindle yeah. or ebook edition or audio. And I'm like, seriously, I'm not going to buy a £25 hardback for this novel <laughs> I want to read. It's, you know, But I want to read it. If it was there as an ebook, I would have bought it already. <laughs> Yeah, but but this is the same reason why Macmillan is is uh, boycotting libraries, right? Yeah, they don't the want belief. readers to read. <laughs> yeah, they want they want to prevent them from buying a, a less expensive version because they believe it'll cannibalize it, as opposed to saying, "Hey, here are all the versions, go for it." Um, and it's really hard to get over that because I mean, you're, you're thinking about um, it's a hundred years mindset, of like, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's, it really it, is. Whereas really we is. have an abundance mindset, which is more books out there on more platforms forms in more formats in as many languages as possible in as many countries as possible means we will make more money. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. For sure. But I mean, I think, uh, I, I'm glad it's, it's, it's good to be able to see why they're so insane. Uh, like understand that it's not just because they're stupid. No, it's no. Because they're, course, they've they're been, not stupid. you know, just like you've conditioned your readers to read your stuff for free and then you get, they get mad when you start to charge money for it, right? It's the same thing as publishers have been conditioned that this is the way it works and this is the only way to make money. So it's really, really hard. I think it takes, uh, it takes, uh, a number of good examples of, of publishers doing something bucking the trend, like the deal that Mark Dawson just signed, right? With um, trying to remember the name of the really awesome publisher that is doing the uh, no, Wellbeck, no, I think. Wellbeck, yeah, Wellbeck, amazing. I'm so excited to see this because no advance, but a 50 50 split with the author. Mm. Like this is, this is no, no publisher, no major publisher would consider that. That's ridiculous. Why for, would you do for that? print? We should be clear for print. For print. Oh, for yeah. print only. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, keeping, leaving Mark to do what he does best in digital. Um, so I think publishers like Welbeck that are willing to buck the trend and try something new and behave. You think of Bookature. Yes, they got bought by, um, Hachette. But they're still operating like an independent, right? They still have the indie mindset. The price points are low and the release strategy is fast. And, they, you know, so uh, that's that's an example of a, of a traditional style publisher that has different model. Mm, and, but, and there but, haven't okay, been enough of well, them, right, for other yeah. publishers to learn, right? Although Bookature is interesting because, of course, they definitely don't produce large print or hardback or even audiobook editions. No, Their they're books, more of a mass digital market. only. So yeah. Yeah, uh, they're I more think, like like mass market, but I mean, obviously, they're trade paperbacks and when they're in print. But yeah, I mean, I, I guess uh, just to sum up our, our uh, episode before I ask you one final question, you know, <laughs> what we're really talking about in this show is about thinking a bit more like traditional publishing because we want to get into libraries and bookstores, but also not to be sucked into the way of doing things that has always been done, but to do things differently in a way that benefits us and also benefits libraries and bookstores and also benefits our readers. So I think we can do all of those things. So it's a it's a pretty exciting time, right? Oh my God, it's never been a more exciting time. And it keeps getting better. It's like I'm waiting for, it's like, no. It, it You're just waiting for the hammer better. to fall. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because you always have to think about that, right? But there's like, no, no, there's yet another. Oh, go keep going, McMillan. Keep doing that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> keep doing we're, we're, we're good. Yeah. You keep doing your thing. I'll just, I'll just, uh, I'll just, I'll just provide readers what they really want. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. So I want just a final question because, you know, circling back, I mean, you, you go to a lot of the conferences, um, you interview people on the podcast, you're at Draft to Digital, you do 
do these wonderful Q and A's every month. I, I and I always tweet them. You know when you you and um, Dan and Kevin do uh, the Q and A there, which is fantastic. So you you interact with a lot of authors. Um, what do you think is sort of top of mind right now for 2020, or things that you see on the horizon that we should be considering? I mean, audio is still growing phenomenally. I think uh, you and I both know um, there are, I'd rather be part of the disruption than be disrupted. So I've embraced uh, AI voice. Yeah, I have a voice double. You have a voice double. <laughs> we want to leverage that and be able to license ourselves rather than have someone just take it and run with it. Um I think I still think uh, one of the key things, so embracing technology, embracing new ways of telling stories and audio is going to bring more opportunity than ever before in other formats and in all that diversification that we're trying to do. Um, but the key thing to remember is nobody can write your book. Nobody can write the book that you're writing. Nobody can tell the stories you're telling in the exact same way with your own unique personality and perspective. And don't lose sight of that human connection, right? This is this is critical. This is why you can get, uh, you know, the seven P's of publishing success. You can get the, the computer AI version for 99 cents because it didn't cost me that much to create. Or you can hear me, where you can actually hear me breathing, where you can actually hear the pause. Well, I, you know, obviously it's been edited and cleaned up so that you don't hear a lot of us and stuff like that. But the human connection is why we're storytellers. That human connection is is um, is started with you know sitting around the, the, the fire and and sharing stories about the hunt from the day. Uh, that human connection is something that only you can bring in a beautiful way. So let's not lose sight of that in terms of the long term. No matter what technology we embrace, no matter what uh, story storytelling form we embrace, that still makes you unique and your book and your story unique. Mm, fantastic. Right. So where can people find you and your books and your podcast online? You can pretty much find everything I'm up to at marklesley.ca. Uh, I'm active on Twitter. I'm active on Instagram. Uh, Liz says I share way too much. So uh, be careful. Sometimes there's topless pictures of me out there. But uh, that's marklesley.ca is where you can find most of the links to the podcast as well as my social media. Fantastic. Thanks so much for your time, Mark. That was great. So I hope you found the discussion with Mark interesting and it's given you some ideas for how you can position your books for libraries and bookstores, whether that is print, ebook or audiobook. And remember, you can get pretty much all of my books for free. Uh, nonfiction, Joanna Penn. Fiction, J.F. Penn. Uh, F for Francis. <laughs> <laughs> I've never liked my middle name, but I have to say it a lot more now. And um, of course, if you listen to the Books and Travel podcast, I am Joe Francis Penn on that show. Anyway, back to the libraries. Uh, you can get my books for free if you request them on your uh, library app or in your local library when it opens again. <laughs> so next week, I have an interview with David Chilton, who is famous in Canada with his book, The Wealthy Barber, and he is on the Canadian Dragon's Den as a serial entrepreneur. And David is fantastic and he sells books direct to companies. So this is the bulk sales model bypassing the usual channels. So literally, he just doesn't care. 
I mean, he does the usual channels as well, but he's far more interested in selling bulk copies to corporates um, to make money directly. And this is such a great business model and I love it and I really want to do it. So you will hear in the interview next week how much I am into this model and David um, is just great. So you're going to really enjoy that and it's going to give you a lot of ideas. So stay safe and stay sane, (laughs) especially have your kids at home. Happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time. <laughs>